As an American who studies Russia and regularly deals with the fallout of the Soviet Union's disintegration, I often find myself wondering what my life might have been like if the United States had collapsed instead. Now, I know this is a problematic thought experiment. The modern USA doesn't really have the secessionist conflicts or so-called captive nations that make it easier to carve up a country. But it's not impossible to imagine, whether you think of it as a dream or a nightmare. There's a bit in Joseph Heller's novel Catch-22, for instance, where an old Italian man tells a morally upright American soldier, Rome was destroyed, Greece was destroyed, Persia was destroyed, Spain was destroyed. All great countries are destroyed. Why not yours? How much longer do you really think your own country will last? Soviet citizens got their answer in 1991. For many, it was the glorious death of an empire. In the West, the USSR's collapse is celebrated as one of the great moments in world history. For others, especially the ethnic Russians scattered across the former Soviet republics, it was traumatic, embarrassing, confusing, scary. Russians leaving their country today, especially the young men fleeing the draft, are experiencing another traumatic moment. And they're sharing that drama with the communities in Central Asia, the Caucasus, and elsewhere, where they're waiting out the Ukraine war or looking to start new lives altogether. I was 20 years old when George W. Bush ordered the invasion of Iraq. I didn't have to leave my home in Santa Cruz, California to escape the war because I was already about as far away as you could get. There was no draft. The whole thing was academic from where I was standing. But what if I powered up my compact computer one morning in April 2003 and learned that the Selective Service was being activated, that I might be called up to ship out to the Middle East? What if my only refuge had been escaping to Mexico? What kind of life would that have been? On today's show, you'll hear from a migration researcher who spent the past five months interviewing Russians who recently arrived in Central Asia. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. Before getting to today's show, I'll take a few seconds to remind listeners that support from Medusa's international audience is more important today than ever, now that the Russian authorities have designated Medusa as an undesirable organization, outlawing our reporting on the grounds that it poses a threat to the foundations of the Russian Federation's constitutional order and national security. In other words, everything we do now, our investigative reports, our newsletters, our posts on social media, even our podcasts, it's all a crime now inside of Russia. Medusa will continue to report events to our readers, millions of whom are still in Russia. We will not submit to this attempted censorship. Now more than ever, your contributions sustain our work, and we need your help also in just putting out the word about our crowdfunding campaign. Okay, this week's show is hosted by Medusa's senior news editor, Sam Brazil, and I've already gobbled up too much oxygen in my cold open, so without further ado, I'll let Sam take it away. I'm Sam Brazil, Medusa in English's senior news editor, and I'm your host this week. Moscow's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which began almost a year ago now, sparked Russians to leave the country at a rate not seen since the collapse of the Soviet Union. The exact number of people who left is almost impossible to determine, but the independent outlet The Bell estimated in January that at least half a million people have left Russia and not returned since February 2022. By their estimates, more of those people have settled in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan when taken together than in any other single country. When the migration reached its peak, in the weeks right after Vladimir Putin announced mobilization in Russia, 
The internet filled with stories of Kazakh and Kyrgyz people showing the hospitality that many of them see as part of their national identities. People and businesses provided shelter, food, and transportation to the newcomers, a lot of whom suddenly found themselves jobless, carless, and basically homeless. But in the months since then, there's been tension. The influx of Russians caused rents to soar, sometimes by two or three hundred percent, and in some cases, locals have been kicked out of their apartments in favor of Russians who could pay more. There's also the fact that this new dynamic, in which it's Russians who have had to leave their countries, is a pretty dramatic reversal. For decades, it's been the norm for Central Asian people to travel to Russia, where they can earn higher wages, but where they're often subjected to harassment, predatory practices from employers, and other kinds of racist discrimination. My guest this week, Jan Matasevich, has spent the last five months conducting interviews with people who have left Russia because of the war, and he described this shift as a reckoning. Jan is a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York and a journalist based in Bishkek. I spoke to him about the reality on the ground for these migrants, the discussions the situation has sparked, and the people who the broad media narratives, like the ones I probably just gave you, might be missing. So hi, my name is uh, Jan Marusevich, and I'm doing research on Russians who have fled their country to Central Asia. Would you mind telling the story of what your PhD project was before and how it kind of shifted over the last year, since there were obviously some unexpected circumstances? I spent, I guess, the better part of the last decade working on questions related to labor migration from Central Asia to Russia. So starting in about the early 2000s, it became, there was this massive outflow of migrant workers coming to Russia, working in all different sectors of the economy. And so I've spent extensive amounts of time in Russia doing research on Central Asian migrant workers. And so my initial plan was to do a project on the experiences of Central Asian migrant workers in the agricultural sector. I was going to look at the way their experiences in rural areas in Russia. And I had gone prior to the, to the invasion of Ukraine, you know, February of last year, I, in 2021, late 2021, I did some preliminary field work in Russia and I was planning on doing work on that and, and focusing on the role of migrant workers who are working as fruit pickers and in greenhouse agriculture. So it's a completely different project yeah, than yeah, what yeah. I'm doing now. There are so many questions I'd like to ask about agricultural migrant workers in Russia, because at least I usually think of migrant workers in Moscow for some reason. So I wish you had gotten to do that project, but this one maybe sounds even cooler. So can you talk about what your project is now? Basically, when the, when the, when the war started, I realized I would not be able to do my fieldwork in Russia. And I mean, even before when I was visiting there, working on, you know, anyone who's worked on migration in Russia knows it's a, it's a political and sensitive issue. So I had my challenges already before. And then I had to find a new, a new project. And I started, you know, I, I was, I was following sort of the response in Russia to the war. And I started seeing a lot of my friends and acquaintances, you know, pack their bags and, and leave the country initially out of protest against the war, but also fearing, you know, further political crackdowns and so on. And, and what was interesting is that I saw people moving to places like Georgia and Turkey and Armenia and also trying to go to Europe and the U.S. if they had those possibilities. But I also saw people moving to what was for me a very unexpected destination to Central Asia. And so I sort of started following it online. There were a lot of telegram groups, a lot of 
articles being published in the spring of 2022. And so I decided that I would, you know, switch my fieldwork completely to Central Asia. And I decided to focus on Kyrgyzstan. So I'm currently in Bishkek. I've been in Bishkek since September. And so now my project is interviewing Russians who have moved here since the start of the war. When I arrived in September, there were, well, there weren't that many. I kind of quickly met a lot of them, but after mobilization was announced, things rad changed radically and there were, there was such a huge influx of people. And so I had, you know, I, I, I'm not struggling to find respondents, uh, currently. And, um, and so what I'm particularly interested in is how these hierarchies have sort of switched, because like I said, for, you know, for almost two decades now, Central Asian migrants have been a very, you know, have been working in, in different precarious jobs. In Russia, they face a lot of discrimination, a lot of racism. They've been rendered a little bit invisible, their labor in Russia. And now all of a sudden kind of the tables have flipped and, and now you have Russians who are looking for a refuge in Central Asia, a place that they maybe, you know, at best didn't think about before really, or, um, uh, kind of had a condescending attitude towards as a kind of former Soviet periphery. And so I, I was, I'm really interested in that, in that moment, because I think it's a really, it's a really pivotal one and how the experience of migrating to a place like Kyrgyzstan has changed the way Russians think of themselves, of the way that they, they, they perceive Central Asians, how they're starting to maybe question attitudes that are commonly held, you know, prejudices towards Central Asian migrant workers that were in Russia. And so that's kind of the, the main focus of my work. Would you say there was the same kind of hierarchy here in Central Asia between ethnic Russians and like Central Asian people, ethnic Kyrgyz people, for example, as part of the Soviet legacy? Have you talked to people about that? I would say the, the, the main demographic of people who are arriving in Central Asia today you know, they're in between, they're in their 20s, maybe in their 30s. I would say those are most of the respondents that I have. And so they were born at the very end, you know, they didn't really, they didn't catch the Soviet Union. And so a lot of them are not very aware, I would say, of the history and of the inter-ethnic relations that were here before. So it's all kind of new to them when, when they move here. For many, it was actually a shock. They didn't realize that there were still, for example, ethnic Russians in Kyrgyzstan, a lot fewer than there were during the Soviet Union, but there's still, there's a local Russian population. And so that's, an, that's, that's kind of a separate uh, dynamic there. And so, yeah, I mean, an example that I like to give to kind of, you know, for, for people who don't know much about the post-Soviet space or Central Asia or the relations, you know, historical colonial and then, and then, and then Soviet relationship between Central Asia and Russia, imagine that this is a pure, purely kind of fantasy hypothetical scenario, but that something happens, let's say in France, and all of a sudden you have all these young French men who are moving en masse to Tunisia or Morocco or to another former French colony. And imagine what kind of tensions that would bring with it. It's kind of difficult to imagine. So it's a similar, I mean, obviously parallels are always a little bit problematic, but I think it's a good way to kind of imagine what a monumental moment we're kind of living through, right? That yeah. before the war, it, nobody in their wildest dreams could have imagined something like this. And so I think this, I'm looking at this 
I, I think it's a it's a really it's a historical moment that I kind of want to witness, and I think is can we can also learn a lot about the the history of the of the relationships between the the two places, and I think we can also I think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out sort of over the over the long term. Mm-hmm. I think you're right about how unimaginable it was before, because even for months, if not more, before Russia invaded Ukraine, we were kind of imagining what the invasion might look like, but weren't thinking about the crackdown that would accompany it or all this migration that comes next. Um, so when, when I imagine the quintessential Russian, I don't know what you want to call them, Rilokant right now, or maybe that's not all of them, but migrant since the invasion, I think of Ivan from Moscow, a tech worker who can work remotely and grab the first flight to Bishkek because he didn't need a visa. So is that, is that the case? Is that the average? Or what, what is that missing? I mean, yeah, I think that's kind of the stereotype that a lot of people have. And there's some truth to that, right? There are people from Moscow and St. Petersburg who are IT workers who have a source of revenue and they can work remotely, relatively comfortably here. But that's not the full picture. One of the reasons that people have been coming for the past several months to Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and to a lesser degree Uzbekistan is the fact that it's very easy to come here, like you mentioned, right? So particularly Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, they're members of the Eurasian Economic Union. You don't need a visa. You don't even need a foreign passport. You can come on your internal Russian passport. So it became the easiest place to go to. You could literally you know, drive to the border with Kazakhstan and then cross on foot. And so as a result, I think the people that have arrived in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan are much more diverse. So in my interviews, I've noticed, you know, you have people from all sorts of backgrounds. The geographical diversity is impressive. I mean, I've met people from the Far East, from the Caucasus, from Buryatia, from Tuva, from Yakutia, from Tatarstan. So, you know, you have people from big cities, small towns, students, uh, you know, older people, sometimes with families. So it's a really, it's a really big mix. And so I would caution from sort of gen- making these kind of generalizations, because I think once you get on the ground and start talking to people, I've heard all sorts of stories and they don't necessarily line up with that picture of the, you know, kind of hipster IT worker. And another thing that I want to mention is I think it's important to talk about because it's been a a little bit controversial, right? The term relakant, which is kind of seemingly emerged out of nowhere where Russians have left the country since the war. Many of them have started referring to themselves as relakant from the word relocation. And it's interesting because a lot of people think it, it exists in English, but it doesn't, even though it comes from a, from an English uh, word. And, and there's been a lot of pushback, I think, in Central Asia, especially on social media and, and other places where people kind of highlight the hypocrisy of, well, why is it when Russians come to Central Asia, all of a sudden they relacante, but when Central Asians move to Russia to work, they're migrants, right? And migrant, the word migrant in Russia has a very kind of negative, racialized connotation of someone who's undocumented, who's doing kind of unskilled labor and so on and so forth. And so there's, there's been, I think, a lot of pushback against that term because it creates, it recreates a kind of hierarchy that relacante are somehow superior to migrants. And I think it's important to highlight that, you know, the term actually predates the war and it comes, as far as I understand, it comes from the IT sector where it started in Belarus, 
where you had a lot of IT workers who were working for Western companies or Israeli companies. And when in 2020, there was the protest movement and the crackdown, a lot of those IT workers ended up, you know, their companies ended up relocating them mm. to Poland, to Turkey, to Israel, to the U.S. and so on. And so that's where the term relakant, as far as I understand, oh. that's where it came from. So I just wanted to, to highlight that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It reminds me a little bit of expat. You know, I'm, if you ask anybody, I'm an expat here in Bishkek. Absolutely. I'm not an immigrant, even though I'm living here for a year and a half now. Yeah. Um, even though the definition of immigrant, as far as I know, is pretty objective. You know, you migrate from one country to another. So what about the, the pre-mobilization wave? And, you know, since mobilization, were people more desperate after mobilization? So was there more of a diversity of who was migrating? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, so there's a lot of tension now, supposedly, or at least you see it on social media between, you know, the first waivers and the second waivers. Mm -hmm. And they, there's, you know, there, there are kind of clashes online and in Telegram groups between them. But basically, I mean, this is a little bit of a generalization, but those who came to Central Asia right after the war began at the end of February, they tended to be politically active in Russia. So they felt like they could potentially be under threat, right? Or they maybe participated in some of the initial protests mm -hmm. and were fearing that they were going to be detained at some point. For many of them, it was kind of a, a moral stance of, I can no longer be in a country that is, you know, bombing civilians. And so I need to just get out of here. So yes, I would say that the, the, the first wave that came to Kyrgyzstan in Kazakhstan, they were kind of more conscientiously against the regime. And it was a very, you know, they, they kind of, they maybe had also a little bit more time to plan it. So some of them would come, open a bank account, find an apartment, you know, and then slowly bring their families or, or, or pets and belongings over. And they also tended to, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of kind of grassroots initiatives that Russian migrants here have started. And those that started before the war, for example, there's a, there's a kind of, I guess, community center, you could call it, called Red Roof in Bishkek that was started by a couple who were very active in, you know, were activists in St. Petersburg before they came here. And they've opened up this communal space where they organize public lectures on different topics from, you know, LGBTQ rights to the history of kind of Russian and Soviet colonialism. And so they're very, you know, progressive politically very engaged. They try to raise awareness among Russians about, you know, their historical privilege that they've had. Right. And so, yeah, that's kind of been a focal point of the first wave of people who arrived here. And then the second one is, you know, it's, it was much more haphazard. It was people made, um, decisions kind of on the spot. You know, a lot of people came with just a backpack. A lot of people who didn't have a lot of means, right? They couldn't afford flights were incredibly expensive. So they couldn't afford a flight to Istanbul or Tbilisi. And so the cheapest way was to, to um, hitchhike or, you know, get a bus to Kazakhstan and then see, and then take it from there. So the second wave is much, much more diverse and they come from also in terms of class. So they come from really different walks of life. And so that's kind of changed the dynamics within Kyrgyzstan. So of course, that sounds like the Red Roof Community Center is more like a decolonial initiative, anti-war, but this isn't a very simple question, but on 
on balance are most of these people, you know, people who oppose the war, oppose Putin, not just people who support it all, but were afraid to be mobilized themselves. Have you talked to Russians who, you know, haven't really had their eyes open since coming? Well, I think I would say mobilization was a shock and it kind of jolted people into a certain degree of awareness. I mean, if you have to, you know, if your life is on the line and that's how a lot of them see this, right, then you're going to start asking yourself questions, I think inevitably. So I have interviewed a lot of people who would say, well, you know, the war started, but it wasn't really affecting me. It seemed far away. I mean, let's say, you know, you're a guy from, from Khabarovsk. I mean, you're on the other end of Russia. Right. You hear stuff on the news. A lot of them don't consume the news at all. And so it wasn't really affecting them until this mobilization drive was announced and then sort of things clicked into gear. And, and so, and that's kind of, that's what I'm interested also in, in, in terms of capturing this ethnographically is I think people are absolutely having very difficult, but interesting conversations. A lot of people that I've talked to will tell me, well, I was kind of apolitical. Yeah, they would admit it. You know, I, I, I stayed out of it. But now that they've had to leave their country, they're starting to have to think about it. And there's a lot of debates online, you know. And so I think it's not as simplistic as being pro or against Putin necessarily. But I would say that the fact that they've had to leave has really had a major impact on the way that they perceive Russia and the political system there and their future. I mean, it's put everything into question. And you notice also that as soon as people are outside of Russia, they're more willing to have discussions that they wouldn't feel safe talking about while they're in Russia. So, so I feel like there are conversations happening, there are engagement, there are arguments also, you know, people are clashing over this. There are people, you know, who came during the first wave who perceive the second wave people to be opportunists, you know, who are, who are not politically engaged, who were blind, so to say before. And there's, there are those kinds of conflicts. And again, it's not for me to weigh in on them. It's more, I'm interested in, in collecting that data and, and kind of witnessing these processes and, and, and seeing those interactions. What about, I know these aren't your interview subjects, but on the other side, how have these people been received here among community members in Bishkek, for example? Well, I think generally, and this is what everyone has told me, and I've also seen it. I mean, they've been treated incredibly well. And I think people have been surprised the extent to which particularly after mobilization, you know, people were really, people came in a hurry. They sometimes didn't have money, they didn't have food and people would come up and, you know, offer them to stay at their place. Or there were all these stories in Kazakhstan where border towns, you know, they opened up schools and sort of factories and, and movie theaters and let people stay there. And there was this kind of grassroots organization to help people out. They were actually greeting people with, with hot tea and plof and and things like this. You had a lot more of that in Kazakhstan, obviously, because that's the first border that they cross. But in Kyrgyzstan also, I've heard this from so many people that, you know, they feel really grateful and that generally people have been very welcoming. But of course, there's been, it also has created social tensions, particularly in terms of housing. Mm -hmm. So this influx of Russians has driven up rental prices. I mean, they've doubled, sometimes tripled virtually overnight. And that's been really challenging because a lot of landlords have been, it's kind of subsided now, but in the initial months after mobilization, you know, there were multiple stories of them kicking out students or 
Kyrgyz families in order to rent out their apartments for double the price to Russians. And of course, that kind of has caused a lot of resentment. But I would say that I've talked to, I mean, even my own landlord actually tried to to do the same thing to me. So when I was living here, so to, to get some Russians in for, for, for more money. But I think there's been a lot of resentment, but the resentment has been more towards the Kyrgyz government that hasn't really done anything, hasn't really said anything about what's happening. It feels like they're pretending nothing's going on. So I haven't, you know, there ha- I haven't heard of any real cases of any kind of verbal abuse or any kind of violence towards Russia, not at all. But it has obviously created some tensions. Now, there's also, I think there's, you see it a lot more on social media that there is, uh, how should I put it? On social media, you see certain, you know, Kyrgyz users who are very active mm-hmm. on some of these networks who share stories of Russians being inconsiderate or saying disparaging things about Kyrgyz people, about Kyrgyz society, about life in Bishkek and sort of complaining about having to be in a quote unquote developing country and things like that. And so a lot of Russians have been called out for that on social media. And that that's like, you can see it. I mean, it gets retweeted a lot and there's a lot of discussion about this, but I think that tends to happen on social media. I'm interested. I follow that a little bit, but it's not necessarily the focus of my research because I think you have to distinguish between kind of the social media bubble and then what happens in society more broadly. But yeah, I think there are certain, obviously, circles, I think more intellectual, um, let's say in Bishkek, who are, they know the history. Right. They, they are very aware of how rampant sort of xenophobia and racism and kind of an imperial mindset mm-hmm. is in Russian society. And so they're, you know, they don't hesitate to call out Russians on this. And I think it's, you know, it's perfectly understandable. I mean, for the last 20 years, Central Asians have been just seen as, you know, perceived as just cheap, expendable labor. That's it. And then prior to that, you know, there's the whole Soviet legacy of repression against non-Russian minorities here. And then the Russian colonial history on top of that. So there's a lot of that history that plays into it. And I think there's a sense in which prominent Kyrgyz activists have been very vocal in saying, you know, look, if you're coming to Kyrgyzstan, you need to be humble, first of all, and you can't behave the way that you behaved in Russia towards Central Asia. And it's a little bit of a wake up call. And there've been actually, I've seen calls, you know, by, by Kyrgyz activists saying, you know, Russians, you need to read up on your history. You need to, you need to go to the museum here. You need to go visit the memorial to the repression of, of the Kyrgyz in, in, in 1916, you know, and about and Stalinist repressions and, and, and so on. So there's that discourse that, that, that is happening online. And I think what's interesting for me is, you know, without making sort of a value judgment on, you know, social media can be a little bit nasty and, you know, there are a lot of insults that are, that are thrown around. I think that's normal. I mean, that's just how social media works everywhere. (laughs) That's not particular to Kyrgyzstan, but I think it's interesting to observe the fact that some of the Russians, you know, who have said things online, like, I don't know, um, you know, this country is dysfunctional. Or, you know, they've complained about uh, the lack of services here or that, I don't know, the taxi, the cab drivers aren't as professional as they were, you know, in Russia or whatever, or the internet doesn't work as well, or there's a litany of complaints. And then you have kind of Kyrgyz calling them out on this, uh, you know, and saying, basically, look, you sound like a really privileged brat (laughs) and need to watch what you're saying. And I think what's interesting for me, the dynamic that's really interesting is that actually I've seen a lot of these. You know, obviously these are anonymous accounts, so I don't know who these you know, people are uh, most of the time. 
but they've had to make apologies, right? They've had to apologize and say, look, I'm sorry. I, I, I made a mistake. I didn't mean to offend. And I think the fact that, you know, you have Russians now apologizing for coming across as insensitive, as prejudiced, as kind of not checking their privilege, quote unquote, that in, in it of itself is already like kind of incredible because you, that wouldn't have happened before the war, right? And so, yeah, I think this experience of migration for many coming here has, you know, these kinds of interactions, these kinds of experiences have, it's really been a very, I think, humbling moment. It's kind of a reckoning for all those years of being kind of on top of the hierarchy of, you know, within the post-Soviet space. And then all of a sudden having to, to question that and, and kind of, you know, take a hard look at yourself in the mirror. And so I think, yeah, I think that's, that's fascinating for me to, to observe. I feel like the fiercest pushback I've seen against these new migrants online, at least has been videos of ethnic Kyrgyz people here in Kyrgyzstan with like the Z sticker on their car, the Z symbol of the war. I haven't seen any Russians do that, but I've seen videos of Kyrgyz people kind of being stopped by groups of people in traffic and lambasted until they take the sticker off. And do you know the word Mankurt? I don't know if this comes from the Chingaz Edmanto novel, they last more than a thousand years, or if it predates that, but it's kind of a legend, I'd say, of this man who's kidnapped by uh, a group of like fierce warriors, like a different tribe. And they take some animal skin and they wrap it over his head and it stretches his skull so tightly that he kind of forgets who he is. It kind of gives him brain damage. And then later in the story, his mother finds him after like years of searching and he doesn't know who she is. So the term Moncourt kind of refers to forgetting who you are as a Kyrgyz person or as a, maybe as a Central Asian nomad, because I guess in that story, the characters are Kazakh, but Kyrgyz people use the term a lot. So anyways, I've seen that term applied to these Kyrgyz people who go work in Russia and come back and try to use these, I mean, worse than chauvinist symbols, but these symbols of like Russian identity, because they're, they're proud of it now. They see themselves as better than their Kyrgyz relatives here. So can you talk about these, actually, not, not just, you know, the, the bad behaving yeah, ones, but just the Kyrgyz migrant workers that are now coming back for the same reasons that the Russians yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. So this is really important, actually, to mention. I think it gets lost in the discussion about, you know, Russian uh, draft dodgers fleeing to Central Asia, is the fact that basically every family in Kyrgyzstan has someone who's working in Russia. And so a lot of them, over the last past couple of years, they've managed to get Russian citizenship. And so they're dual citizens. Sometimes they only have Russian citizenship. You know, they've been, the, the children are born and raised in Russia. And they've also, many of them have fled Russia to Kyrgyzstan. And that often, you know, it doesn't get, it doesn't get portrayed in the statistics because they maybe have a Kyrgyz passport as well. So you don't really see necessarily those numbers, but it's very significant. I think, I mean, my estimates would be probably just as many Kyrgyz migrant workers with Russian passports have maybe returned to Kyrgyzstan as there are sort of Russians who have, who, have, who have come back. And it's a kind of strange situation because for so long, Russia was the primary destination for work. And it kind of became a little bit this, you know, promised land where you could, sure, conditions were rough. You know, there was, there was uh, racism and police brutality and housing discrimination and all sorts of different things. But you could also potentially make a lot of money and send remittances back and, you know, maybe build a nice house for your family and so on. So for many people, Russia became, yeah, a place that you wanted, you know, Russian citizenship was seen as something that was 
that had quite a lot of value that you would want to get to regularize your stay there, to be able to send your kids to school and so on. And so also, you know, it's quite natural in the sense that these migrant workers who have spent maybe two decades in Russia, of course, they're socialized as Russians, right? They consume Russian media, they're exposed to all the same propaganda. And so they end up having views that are not so different from maybe, you know, other Russians. And so a lot of them are, are coming back. And again, I can't generalize this. I'm not against the war, so I'm not for the war. It's mixed. But yeah, that's, that's been interesting. And what I, want, what I want to point out as well is that actually I've had a lot of Russian respondents who have told me that they encounter sort of in their daily interactions with Kyrgyz people, especially people who are older. Again, as a reminder, in Kyrgyzstan, you, can st you get all the Russian TV channels. In fact, I would say people probably consume more Russian media, right? Russian TV shows, they watch the Russian news and so on, than even Kyrgyz content. And so there are a lot of, you know, there, there, I don't know, I don't have numbers, but there's a significant portion of Kyrgyz society that generally is sympathetic or have, you know, they're in that Russian media bubble. And so they're vaguely pro-war or, uh, or at least they maybe support Putin and think that, you know, he's a, he's a strong, he's a strong leader. Right. Um, and so Russians encounter these views and then it's, it's really uncomfortable for them because on the one hand, they want to be respectful and, you know, they know that they're guests in this country and they need to be sort of careful to what they say. But then it's also very uncomfortable to encounter people here that have the same views that you kind of fled from, you know, you left Russia to not be exposed to this. So that also creates certain tensions. And then I think, you know, there's also a very basic point that I want to make is that for a lot of Kyrgyz migrant workers, they've overnight, they've lost their main source of income. So a lot of these men, a lot of their families here in Kyrgyzstan pressure them to leave the country, especially if they had a Russian passport, but even those with just Kyrgyz ones, you know, there have been stories of Kyrgyz citizens getting somehow drafted either by force or tricked into signing a contract into, to fight in Ukraine. And so they've come back to Kyrgyzstan and now they're sitting and, you know, they don't have a job. The remittances are coming, aren't coming in. Some of them are living with their parents. They're a little bit bored <laughs> and yeah, they miss Russia in the sense that, you know, they don't necessarily miss Russia as this wonderful place to live, but it's, it's what they know and they had, you know, money and income and now they're scrambling to find alternatives. So they're, you know, trying to see, can, can I go become a fruit picker in the UK or can I go work maybe at a resort in Turkey or, or find job at a factory in South Korea. And so I think that's also been a part of the social tensions that it's created uh, in Kyrgyzstan. Do you want to describe this fruit picker in the UK situation really briefly? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, that's just one example. Yeah. So, so uh, the UK has signed an agreement with Kyrgyzstan to recruit several thousand workers every year to go work on farms in the UK because since Brexit, they've, they've basically lost all that cheap labor from, from Central and Eastern Europe. And so they're trying to, you know, find workers elsewhere. And so there was already a first a group who went last year and then they're, they're in the process of recruiting a new, new group. And uh, there was just in Bishkek a few days ago or last week, they had an office where you could sign up to be recruited and there was a little bit of a stampede. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of those people are, you know, used to work in Russia and yeah. are now trying to find another destination. Mm -hmm. I imagine all these people coming to Bishkek, the Russians and, I mean, the Kyrgyz people maybe go home, their home villages, but at least the Russians, because, you know, it's the closest thing 
to Moscow, although they're not all coming from Moscow. But you told me traveling around the country, you've encountered new Russians basically everywhere you've gone. Absolutely. I mean, I've, so I've, I mean, I haven't been, there's still places that I need to visit, other places in Kyrgyzstan, but I've been to Karakol and I've been to Osh and I've been around Isakul and everywhere I've stopped, I've met Russians. Um, you know, I didn't really even have to look for them. Yeah. And these are not local Russians. These are just, you know, people have just recently right. arrived. The, the reason it's a little bit striking to me is that I think Kyrgyzstan is the most rural former Soviet country. And, you know, I've read that one of the reasons Kyrgyz culture was preserved really well is that it was so difficult for these Soviet culture builders to actually get through the country because it's so mountainous and hard to traverse. So just kind of surprising that these Russians have already made it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to to highlight the fact that, you know, the Soviets had an, a very active policy, and a lot of people are talking about it now, of keeping Kyrgyz out of Bishkek, for example. So, you know, Frunze at the time, as it was called in the Soviet days, the majority were non-Kyrgyz during the Soviet days, and then it, and then it changed when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, so I think there was also an attempt to keep kind of the, the, the rural population on collective farms and in their villages. So the, the, I think part of the reasons why you have, why you have Russians a little bit all over the country is when they arrived, Bishkek became oversaturated very quickly. There was no housing. I mean, there were, you know, they were renting apartments at a thousand dollars a month. I mean, which is something like four times what people uh, on average make here a month. And so it pushed Russians to look at options elsewhere. And there's a lot of interesting dynamic for me to look at is that you have a lot of, like I said, there are a lot of, there were a lot of Kyrgyz migrants who went to Russia, who sent back remittances, built a lot of houses for their families. And a lot of these houses are vacant. And so, you know, they have family reunions maybe in the summer, but in the winter, they're just standing there. And so I've met several groups of Russians, you know, for example, who have set up, you know, they, they live together as roommates in a house and it's more affordable. Kyrgyzstan kind of surprisingly has really, really good mobile internet, right? Mm -hmm. We have really great reception, really high speed and internet. I think it's the second cheapest in the world too. Yeah, it's cheap yeah. and it's, 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 it's pretty good quality. So right. if you work remotely. You don't really maybe need to be in Bishkek, you know, you can be in a nice house or cabin in the mountains, you know, enjoy the nature and, 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 and work from home. So that's one appeal. And there's also, I mean, obviously also Kyrgyzstan is just an incredibly beautiful country. Mm -hmm. So I think there were people who, I think the whole experience of war for many, I mean, was deeply traumatic. I think a lot of people lived it, you know, kind of viscerally felt that they no longer have a country to go back to, or, I mean, it's, uh, psychologically, it's really difficult. Obviously it's, you know, I'm not trying to compare it to what Ukrainians are, are going through. It's completely different and it's compl on a completely different scale. But I think for some respondents that I talked to, they said, well, you know, it's kind of nice to get away, to just be in nature, to be in the middle of the countryside. And it kind of gives me a breather. Yeah. And so I think that's also part of the, part of the explanation. There's also, I mean, this is kind of anecdotal evidence, but there, you know, if Russians, what I want to say is that there are Russians who, for example, were avid hikers and skiers, right? You have those, that, those kind of people everywhere. They've tended to gravitate to Kyrgyzstan because they say, well, I have to leave Russia in any case, might as well go to a place where I have great skiing and hiking. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that also, um, I think is part of the rationale. Yeah, that makes sense. At least in the U.S., I might be wrong in Russia, but you know, I think everywhere skiers are not, you know, like the bottom income tier of society. And you mentioned a couple of times, like 
the second wave of Russian Rivalcanti or whatever they are, haven't, haven't just been these remote workers at tech, tech companies. So a lot of people suddenly have no income, they're more vulnerable. Can you talk about those people? And I want to mention that in the article that you wrote in October, you kind of called for international organizations to provide some aid. And I wonder if that's come to pass. Have there been any, any efforts to help these people that are suddenly you know, homeless or near homeless in some cases and have no source of income, no family networks here? Mm-hmm. Um, what's that situation? Well, yeah, I, the, the reason I, I wrote about that is at the height of the influx of people when really, I mean, if you walked around Bishkek, you just saw all these guys, you know, who were completely lost with kind of backpacks trying to find a place to stay. I met quite a few people who had literally no money in their bank account. You know, there were 19-year-old students from, you know, maybe a small provincial town in Russia. Perhaps their parents support the war, so their parents aren't really even going to help them. Uh, if they left the country and I just, after seeing this week after week, I started thinking, well, you know, and you would see sometimes restaurants hand out food to some of these people. And I thought, well, this is, you know, this is can be, could, could potentially be a crisis situation. The, the difficulty is that, you know, obviously these people don't fall under the mandate of any international organization because they're not asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they left Russia to escape military conscription, that that is grounds, you know, based on the 1951 UN Convention on Refugees, that is a valid reason to apply for asylum, but they're not applying for asylum. Here, they, uh, here at least, right? They, yeah, they are in, in, in Europe and in other places, but here they're not applying for asylum, primarily because, because Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, for example, are members of the Eurasian Economic Union, they have full residency rights, right? They can very easily register and have the right to work and so on. So they're not undocumented in any way. And so, so in that sense, they don't fall into that category of asylum seekers. And so they can't, they're not going to receive the kind of aid or could ask the kind of aid that, for example, an Afghan asylum seeker in Kyrgyzstan could. Mm -hmm. And so they've had to rely on kind of grassroots initiatives. So I know that in Bishkek, there are several safe houses, places where people can spend the night for you know, for a couple of weeks and kind of get their bearings. And, and I know that there are a few kind of informal initiatives where people have pooled money to, to rent bigger houses where, 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 where people can stay. And so, but they've had to rely on informal networks. And I think what's challenging is that for a lot of them, you know, they can't, they don't have the family networks to rely on that, that maybe Kyrgyz migrants that are returning, right? Sure. If a Kyrgyz migrant is returning, obviously they're also losing income but they could maybe stay with, you know, grandparents or family members and so on. Whereas the Russians who have no income who come here, they're in a difficult position. And, and that's kind of the irony of the situation is that they've had to take on the same kind of menial work mm-hmm. that Central Asians are known for in Russia. So for example, here, you now you have Russian delivery workers, right? Who are working basically for the equivalent, I mean, a little over the minimum wage here. Taxi you, drivers. Taxi drivers, you have people working in uh, warehouses, you have people working in landscaping companies, in laundromats, I mean, all sorts of places like that. You know, if you have young people who have no sort of skills and and are just trying to find work. And so somehow people have managed over the the past couple of weeks and months to to find ways to, to survive. But I think if there's, for example, a second mobilization drive, 
and this reproduces itself, we could be facing a challenging situation because already, you know, this is a country that doesn't have a lot of means. There is no social safety net for Kyrgyz people. So as an outsider, you know, you, you have even less of that. And obviously I don't know, you know, we don't know the full scale of the statistics, but some people, I, among my respondents was interesting is I haven't had a single case of someone returning to Russia, to Russia. I've heard a lot about this, right? People say that some came and were disappointed or couldn't, you know, survive and just said, you know, well, screw it. I'm going to go back. Mm. Um, I haven't met personally, this is just personal. I know that there are obviously probably hundreds of people like that. I haven't, I don't know anyone who's gone back. And then some people have moved on, right? If they, if they managed to get, if they had a foreign travel passport or a lot of people are kind of also shuttling in between countries. So they'll spend some time in Kyrgyzstan, then go to Kazakhstan, Mm -hmm. then maybe go to Armenia, then come back and sort of, so so there's a lot of movement and people aren't settled yet. So speaking of Kazakhstan and the Eurasian Economic Union, there's this new rule change that just came into effect. Can you explain what that changes and what effect you think that'll have on these Russians? Yeah, so Kazakhstan just announced, I think it just came into, into force in, on January, January 26th, I believe. Basically, uh, Kazakhstan required Russians to apply for some sort of residency after 90 days. So you know, before you could spend, you could do visa runs and, and, and leave Kazakhstan, for example, to Kyrgyzstan for like one hour, for one hour, and then come back and then it would reset the clock and you could stay another two or three months in Kazakhstan. And now they said, well, now it's 90 days, every 180 days. So, which is kind of the regular, it's a common rule that a lot of places have, like the EU has the same kind of rule for, for tourists, um, and other countries. And Kazakhstan had that in place for most foreigners, but there was sort of an exception for members of Eurasian Union states, so like Kyrgyzstan and Russia, and they did away with it. And they said that they were just trying to harmonize legislation and just make it, you know, that everyone was kind of on the same level. But it was perceived among Russians who were in Kazakhstan as kind of a stab in the back that that Kazakhstan was trying to push them out. So basically, I think my, my understanding of the rationale behind it for the Kazakh authorities, I think, is to try to regulate this population and also get them to, for example, pay taxes right. in the country because a lot of them are working remotely and they're just, you know, they're de facto living in Kazakhstan and just going outside and coming back in. And this kind of pushes them to apply for residency, get a tax number, and, you know, be fully kind of residents of Kazakhstan. So I think that's, there's a question of control, but also revenue that I think is important for Kazakhstan. And I think in terms of what kind of impact it's going to have on, on Russians who are in Kazakhstan, I thought that there would be a lot of people who, as soon as this announcement was made, would, you know, relocate to Kyrgyzstan. I was kind of expecting a spike in Bishkek of Russians from Kazakhstan coming here. Yeah. So far, I mean, this is again, anecdotal evidence. I haven't seen that really, Mm -hmm. but I also, at the same time, as soon as this was announced. You know, I, I'm monitoring a lot of the telegram groups in Kazakhstan and basically, so in order to establish residency in Kazakhstan, if you're a Russian citizen and actually Kyrgyz now that, you know, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, right. they're, they're lumped together now, you have to register with, with your landlord where you live and have a valid work contract, which is a hurdle, Yeah. but 
they're also, I, I just saw that there were instantly all these middlemen popping up, you know, offering you kind of a real slash fake work contract, yeah. you know, so that you could get your documents. And so I think there will be ways to get around these limitations. It's going to cost a little bit of money. Sure. But, you know, for anyone who studied sort of post-Soviet migration and, and these rules, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's a little bit like in Russia, there's a similar system where you can find ways of, you know, creative ways of getting around some of these restrictions. But uh, yeah, but I also, you know, it, it's, it's also been interesting to look at kind of the response on social media among Kazakhs where people have said, well, you know, look, now you get a, you know, a taste of your own medicine because, right. you know, migrant workers from Central Asia have had to go through hell to register themselves. You know, it's a constant battle to have all the different documents in order to be able to work and live in Russia. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is a little bit of schadenfreude definitely among Central Asians to see Russians struggling and have, having to deal with, you know, kind of post-Soviet migration bureaucracy that they were probably not even aware of before. That'll be interesting in 90 more days, I guess, to see if there's any kind of influx, because at least Medusa reported that a lot of people were making their final run on like January 25th, and then they still get that period. So a couple more months. You mentioned, I want to ask, you mentioned, for example, Yakuts and Tuvans and non-ethnic Russians coming along with the ethnic Russians. I wonder if you've interviewed those people, ethnic minorities from Russia, especially Turkic ones, and what experience they've had being in a Turkic country now and maybe no longer being visible minorities. I've had interviews. I've mm -hmm. had interviews um, and kind of informal conversations with men from Tuva and Yakutia. So those are kind of the two, the two groups that I've, I've met with so far. And it's been interesting because they have a very different experience, mm -hmm. I would say, in Kyrgyzstan for a number of reasons that you already kind of alluded to. So first of all, yes, the fact that in Russia, they're, they're constantly made aware of the fact that they're an ethnic minority and are often, you know, if they're outside of their region, you know, they're discriminated against often just as badly as, as people from Central Asia, right? And so all of a sudden coming to a place like Bishkek, where at least visually, right, they don't stand out is uh, a lot of people have mentioned, you know, it's a nice change. It's a nice, you know, a, a nice, a nice feeling to be able to kind of blend in. And there's a lot of funny anecdotes, right, of men who, you know, people will approach them and start speaking to them in Kyrgyz and they'll say, I don't speak a word of Kyrgyz. And then you have all these, you know, kind of funny, funny interactions. And so they've, you know, they, and, and the second thing that, that has come out is that this is this particular to Yakuts and, and Tuvans that, you know, they come from, these are Turkic groups that speak Turkic languages. And so all of a sudden when they come to Kyrgyzstan, there's this kind of, I think, reawakening a little bit of, I wouldn't say it's not pan-Turkism, but there's a sense of, you know, community that they weren't really aware of before. They never necessarily made the connection between mm -hmm. Yakutia and Central Asia and a, and a place like Kyrgyzstan, right? Um, that the languages are relatively similar. And so there's been a lot of, I think, new friendships. And I think it's raised a lot of their awareness of where they come from and, and how these links and ties have been sort of cut. And so that's one thing. And then the third thing is that, uh, that I've noticed from talking to, to men from, and these are predominantly men, I've also met women, mm -hmm. but it's mostly men from, from those regions is that, you know, they've experienced mobilization in a much more intense way than most of the ethnic Russians that I've met, because, you know, especially if they come from rural areas, you know, 
they've told stories and obviously the media has talked about this extensively that Russia has the Russian authorities, it seems are, you know, explicitly trying to recruit and mobilize ethnic minorities more. And they're being kind of used as cannon fodder in Ukraine. There's a lot of evidence for that. And so I've heard stories of people where the army recruiters would come in and take all, you know, half the men of an entire village. So I know, for example, people from Altai where this happened, you know, they would just come in and overnight, you know, they start knocking on doors and, and taking people. And so it's very near to them and, and they, and they know people who already have died or have been sent there. Whereas for people from kind of the bigger cities in Russia, it's obviously they're, 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 they're afraid of this, but it's less, it's less personal. They might not actually know anyone who's mm -hmm. participating in the conflict in any way. Whereas people from a lot of those other ethnic republics in Russia, they've, they've already lost family members and friends. There's a lot of paranoia, generally speaking, among the Russian exiles that are now in Central Asia, in Kyrgyzstan and in Kazakhstan, that at some point they might be deported back to Russia for avoiding the draft. There's a sense that, particularly in Kyrgyzstan, I think more than in Kazakhstan, there's a sense that the Kyrgyz government is pro-Russia, pro-Kremlin, and that if, you know, push comes to shove, if the Russian authorities request it, the Kyrgyz would start sending people back. That hasn't happened at all. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that fear is, you know, more paranoia than necessarily based in, in reality, but there have been a number of cases now that are quite troubling and that have caused a lot of panic, I mm -hmm. think, among people here. So one case uh, is in Kazakhstan where there was an FSB officer, Mikhail Zhilin, who fled mobilization in Russia, moved to Kazakhstan and actually applied for asylum, which is a very rare case. And not a lot of people have done that. I guess he applied for asylum for protection. It's unclear, but the Russian authorities ended up asking for his extradition and the Kazakhs arrested him and sent him back relatively quickly. And we haven't, you know, he hasn't been heard since probably been detained and, you know, we'll, 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 we'll probably face excessive jail time in Russia. So that was one case that was worrying, but that was an FSB officer a little bit of a particular case, but high profile. But more recently, there's been another very kind of worrying precedent. A young guy who had been living in Kyrgyzstan from Russia, Timofey Yushin, you know, applied to organize a pro-Ukrainian protest in Bishkek. So in Kyrgyzstan, like in Russia, you have to apply and ask permission to organize a protest. He applied for it. And before he could even organize it, he was called in for questioning by the Kyrgyz security services. And it's unclear kind of what happened during that discussion, but they basically said, look, we're gonna charge you with inciting inter-ethnic hatred just for applying okay. to do this because you're trying to, you know, sow discord and, and they didn't wanna have any of that. And basically he had a lawyer who was present there who told him, listen, you need to get out of the country. Mm -hmm. And he has since gone to Kazakhstan. I think he's on his way to Moldova. But that's been a, that's a scary case. I know that a lot of people are discussing that on Telegram and so on, because this was not, again, not a high profile person, but I think it also gets to, right. There's this question. I mean, it's a whole separate debate. I don't want to get into it too much, but you know, there's a lot of this, why are Russians protesting when they're abroad? And, and, and I think that's a separate discussion that we can have, but I think in the case of Kyrgyzstan, these kinds of cases, I think would dissuade anyone from even attempting to make any kind of public statement or protest here. 
And so, yeah, we'll see, we'll see how this develops. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully these are just individual cases, but there's definitely a sense of, of fear. And I think some people, as soon as they, they'll be able to get a foreign passport or a visa to another country, you know, precedents like this might push them to look for other options. You also mentioned to me the huge number of Kyrgyz people who have dual citizenship. And there's now, of course, precedent for the Kyrgyz government revoking the citizenship of a person who was born in Kyrgyzstan who had dual citizenship and sentencing him to be sent to Russia. So I imagine that's worrying for a lot of people too. Yeah, absolutely. I think generally speaking, you know, after coming to Kyrgyzstan, I think a lot of Russians have become more politicized in a way. And so then they start following the media here, which has until recently been relatively free, right, compared to other places in the region. And we're living through, unfortunately, a period of time in Kyrgyzstan where there's been a huge crackdown on the media, right? Um, They've arrested a lot of activists. They banned Radio Free Europe. And it looks like they might start pressuring other independent media in Kyrgyzstan. And so for a lot of Russians, you know, that's a very worrying development. And I think having grown up in, you know, a lot of them, the only thing they've known is Putin's Russia. And so when they come to Kyrgyzstan, they kind of project their experiences from the past and they say, wow, this looks like they're copy pasting kind of a lot of the, the restrictions. And I think for a lot of Russians, you know, who, who didn't know much about Kyrgyzstan before they come here and they, I've heard this said over and over again, that they, they've come to see Kyrgyzstan as kind of a Russian puppet state, Mm -hmm. which I think is an oversimplification. Obviously it's a little bit more complicated than that. But yeah, but there's a, there's a sense a very deep sense of unease and, you know, people are kind of watching and seeing how the situation develops, but yeah, but potentially if things continue in the same direction, you could see uh, Russians leaving Kyrgyzstan, but also, you know, obviously politically active Kyrgyz might have to, you know, hopefully not. I hope this, this doesn't, this doesn't come, but, but they might have to leave the country. Mm. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. Thanks for tuning in. And thank you for supporting our work at Medusa and for letting people know about it. Please put out the word. Until next week.